G'day, mate. Luke Ford. I want to play you a clip from Joe Rogan from five, six, seven years ago. But this little clip sums up to me what's happened to dissident thought. So Joe Rogan's not all right, but he is a dissident. And it used to be when I started looking at uh, dissident right thought about six, seven years ago, it was primarily a written word medium. And so it was fairly high IQ. And now over the past few years, the, the quality of intellectual discourse on the alt-right. Generally. And this little clip here from Joe Rogan kind of summarizes, epitomizes, embodies what's happened. There's some crazy shit that they haven't even discovered yet. You know, just recently they found a new species of chimpanzee in the Congo. A gigantic chimpanzee that's over six feet tall. It's really? called the Bondo Ape. The locals have two different names for chimpanzees. They have what they call the tree beaters and the lion killers. And the lion killers are these gigantic chimpanzees. They're like six feet tall. They get to be like 400 pounds. They sleep the on the ground have... because they don't give a fuck. They don't have to sleep in trees. Could you imagine a chimp, shit, a chimp that's not not four feet tall, but the chimp that's <laughs> yeah. six foot tall, four hundred pounds, just a giant, and they walk upright. That's the crazy thing. If you look it online, look up a uh, giant mystery ape. It's called the Bondo ape. It's in a part of the Congo called Bili. Hold no on, different than any other animal. Allison yeah. from Florida is going to challenge you. Allison, go ahead. Yeah, I'm a primatologist. There's no such thing as a as a Bondo ape. You're a fucking idiot. Go online and look it up. You're a what? What do you do? It's a new discovery. You're a primatologist. Well, look it up. You're not. Okay, this is like typical Joe Rogan, whether it's with regard to COVID, with regard to vaccines, whether it's regard to any specialized knowledge where Joe Rogan has Googled something and he feels like he is more of an expert than people who've devoted their lives to this topic. So here's Joe Rogan going on and on about some new giant ape and a primatologist calls up and tells him he doesn't know what he thinks of what he's talking about and what's joe rogan's reaction not current pay attention go online and look it up um yeah this is yeah you've learned some shit from the call when did you graduate i have rogan's reaction when did you graduate when from 2000 yeah when was the last time you got online and researched primates have you ever looked <laughs> at any of the new discoveries have you looked at any of carl amon's work yeah, I've been asking. What are you laughing at? Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? I'll tell you why you're laughing, because you don't have a point. So you're trying to, oh, you're ridiculous. That's rid I have a PhD. Meanwhile, there's all sorts of photographs of this, this primate, this gigantic chimpanzee. Not only that, it's on National Geographic, stupid. NationalGeographic.com. CNN.com, stupid. No, 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 no. There's bones. There's tissue samples. There's hair. There's fecal matter. There's all sorts okay. of different things. Now, they've mapped the DNA of this animal already? Oh, please. Thank we you mean, oh, please, stupid. You haven't good. paid attention to it at all. These are legitimate scientists and primatologists <laughs> that are in the Congo studying this thing. And you don't know. That embodies a lot of dissident thought these days. Like, people who've done a Google search about complicated topics are so self-assured that they know more than those who've devoted much of their adult lifetime to studying the topic. Yet you're calling up. You've done zero research on this. You haven't looked into it at all. You're telling me we know all the animals that are in the world? Are you telling me we know all the animals in this gigantic, several thousand mile long, intense rainforest? We've mapped that there's out. There's another fake chimpanzee out there. No, it's not a fake, stupid. It's, it's not a fake. Listen, they have skulls. Listen to me. They have skulls. They have hair. They have fecal samples. They have photographs. They have a dead one. Okay? Yeah.
by not fringe cnn okay national geographic all these different when it's convenient for a lot of dissidents they go oh it's on cnn it's on national geographic it's it's been reported by the new york times so when it serves them dissidents are very happy to quote prestigious sources or sources that they would otherwise deride because there's so little intellectual substance to many of their points. Legitimate scientific resources. Go look it up. Bye. You'd okay. like to prove that, wouldn't yeah. you? Get to <laughs> National Geographic. Silly. Listen to her. Oh, hi, I'm a PhD. Right. Let, let's, uh, let's mock expertise. And uh, speaking of expertise, we have Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Famous football prognosticator. Yeah. Yeah, how are you feeling today? The 49ers oh, had a big victory walking yesterday. On air, just, walking on air. Just nonstop. Couldn't. Just an extended high that just had been coasting all day long. No, I, I forgot about it like 10 minutes after. So I, one of the articles I, I read about the game quoted some expert in, in sports psychology, and he says that the, the pain from losing always outweighs the the pleasure that you get from your team winning. That's right. That's what drives. That's why gambling addiction is, is such a real thing. You want the vengeance. It's the lust for vengeance that drives gambling. <laughs> so how did you feel when they uh, when the WEF waved the game over last night? I, I, I tried to think of ways that I could complain about it, but I, I think it's fair. I think everyone knows that if there's less than 15 seconds, you don't you don't, you don't try to get a ball, playoff in bounds. Yeah, that's you don't, the only you don't time when you don't run the ball. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I they, and the ref was scrambling to try to do that. He has to like bless the football by touching it. Right. It, it was it was like all these like rabbinical subtleties to football too that you know I had to I learned yesterday. I learned about roughing the kicker and blessing the football between plays and what what a what a roller coaster! What a what a, a game! What a, I mean, the, the the final final few minutes of that game was was riveting. Yeah, I really felt like, uh, yeah, I I I think the uh, San I think San Francisco is just like one sandwich short of a picnic as far as being the championship team. So I don't expect them to go all the way, but um, I'm happy they did because just I think it'd be good for the city. You know, it reminds me of that. You remember when uh, the so the first Super Bowl passed uh, after 9-11 was won by the Patriots. Don't recall that or not. Yes. But this victory broke a long, long drought. It might have been their first Super Bowl victory ever, or at least in a very long time. That was the Patriots' first victory. Yeah, it was the first Super Bowl, was it? It okay. was the Patriots' first Super Bowl yeah. victory. The first Super Bowl was played in 1966. The year yeah. I was born. Okay, wow. And, you know, so this was always, you know, this insult. Because also prior to that, uh, you know, the Red Sox hadn't really won in a, in, since Babe Ruth. Yeah, the curse of the Bambino. Right. So uh, so Boston's mood was down, you know. And then uh, so when they, when, when they finally broke through and won, you know, people were jubilant. And that night, uh, you know, I'd gone out. It was a freezing night. It was, you know, middle of winter. I think it was played in, in uh, Los, uh, uh, New Orleans. Yeah. 
So, uh, but up in Boston, of course, it was it was brutally cold. And uh, so the Patriots won, everyone's jubilant, and then, you know, end up walking home, which is about a mile uh, through the cold. And there was snow on the ground, and I think the moon was out and everything. And I'm walking home, I'm walking past the library, and this SUV just drives by me and then screeches to a stop, right? And then this guy gets out, and I think, oh, my God. Am I going to get mugged? Because I have been mugged in Boston. Um, <laughs> and so I, my heart starts racing like I'm going to be, like, you know, attacked, you know. And then he stops. He's running towards me. Then he stops, puts his arms up in the air, and he goes, the effing Patriots have won the effing Super Bowl. Woo! And then he turns around and gets back in his car and goes. But it was a heart-stopping moment. Well, I think it's fairly clear that the more intense your devotion to sports, the worse the quality of your life. Like normal people, happy people don't act as that person acted. The people yeah. who paint themselves, people who are so incredibly devoted to sports, it's obviously because they want to live vicariously through this sports team. And the reason they're so desperate to live vicariously is that they want to forget about their own life. So, yeah. so people who aren't happy with their own life, who aren't moving ahead in their own life, who are not assertive and aggressive and successful in their own life, the more desperate they are to get rid of their unwanted self and to lose themselves in this sporting allegiance. It's so sort of like some intensity. borrowed functioning, right, Luke? Is that what I'm sorry? Saying? Is it borrowed functioning or is that different? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's analogous to, to borrowed functioning, but it's even less functional than borrowed functioning. So borrowed functioning is if, Let's say you move to LA and suddenly my life gets a whole lot better because I'm hanging out with you every day and I'm, yeah. I'm, you're kind of schlepping me along in, in your wonderful, exciting life. And you're going to all the cool parties and you're introducing me to hot young women and you, you get me this great contract to teach the Alexander technique on a particular movie. And like my life just dramatically improves because you're the man and you're making things happen there. I'm borrowing your functioning. But yeah. if I'm borrowing the functioning of Tom Cruise in a movie, I mean, that's even, uh, that's even more remote. More pathetic. Yeah, because yeah. borrowed functioning always ends. Like, uh, eventually, you'd get tired of, of schlepping me along, and eventually I'll drop back to, to my normal life. But when, when, you, when you're relying on a sporting team or, or an actor or a politician to provide your, your meaning and excitement in life, uh, that's, <laughs> that's really sad. Hey, look, um, I, I hope, I, you know, I hope uh, I didn't sort of uh, overstay my welcome yesterday. I got the sense you were losing. Uh, I thought that would have been much more fun than it had to be. <laughs> How could you overstay your welcome? You, you, you're so exciting a character. Oh, I, well, I don't know. I, I just felt like I sort of felt the energy draining from your voice. And then uh, I, I, I thought maybe I'd been sort of because uh, I've done that to other people. I've done that to Claire. I've just kept her on a live stream thinking that it was a great conversation but that's really eager to give her the boot so anyway well i'm glad that i'm glad uh there's no harm done now i was thinking now you know i was thinking about um you know the entrepreneurship conversation we had a little yes. bit yesterday and how you say um you know 20 or was it five percent one in 20 yeah can, can be successful. probably cut out yeah. to pay their bills by being entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah, and 
you don't see yourself as somebody who's who's in that group. No, right? I, I can't be. I, I did that. I, I paid my bills from from blogging, and mm-hmm. I, I paid a lot of my bills. Um, yeah, I paid. I have paid most of my bills for the past twenty five years from being entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for, for for people like me and and for many others, it's wonderful to be entrepreneurial. But they also should have some sort of um, reliable income, which would usually come from a job. Yeah. Well, I had an idea. Um, and you know, um, you can either take this literally as an idea or, um, as a symbolic idea to, to just discuss entrepreneurship. But, you know, when I was in office, I remember there was this, this kind of hippie chick that would come in once a week and just water the plants, you know, and this was her business. It was a very small business, but it was her business. And she sort of, you know, I don't know how much she made or anything, but uh, I suppose it was worth her doing. And it was sort of like her way of carving out a little niche for herself uh, and, you know, being in the, it's still sort of get corporate style irregularity to her income. So I just thought it was sort of an impressive display of someone knowing what they like to do and then making a livelihood out of it. So yeah, but it'd be a really poor livelihood. I mean, I know a lot of people and I've met people whose livelihood is watering plants. It's it's not particularly prosperous livelihood. Okay. Well I was thinking, but instead of watering plants, you could have sort of a roaming Alexander technique set you could give those sessions in yes. a uh corporate setting yes and probably get paid pretty well yes but you would need a little um you you need someone to sort of grease the skids for you and show you how to uh get yourself in front of the right people and yeah see I, I've, the done, deal. I've done some of that and there you are have. i know other alexander teachers who have corporate gigs and is that something you're opposed to or? Oh, of course not. No. Okay. I'm not opposed but, to any honorable way of earning a living. Yeah. Um, because I, I will tell you that, you know, there's a lot of effort spent trying to keep, um, you know, veal pen workers <laughs> um, happy because when they leave, if like a if like a high value employee leaves a company because their life is suffering, their health is suffering, their mental health is suffering, it's it can be a very big blow in a tech company because they have so much institutional knowledge. It sometimes takes you know half a dozen people to replace them. I remember you know? when I was working in construction, I was working in landscaping, and I was making a dollar over minimum wage. So yeah. in Australia, I'd been earning about. 30 to $40 an hour. I had a, a cleaning and gardening contract at a shopping center. And I come back to America and because California in particular has so much immigration, you know, wages are just bottom. So I went from making 30 to 40 an hour at age 18 to coming back to California and earning $4.50 an hour. Mm-hmm. And in, in the course of wandering around these construction sites and doing the landscaping, I would meet people whose primarily, primary job was just like driving around with the boss. And they were making $20 an hour. They were making five times as much as me. And their primary job was just to be on friendly terms with the boss and just drive around with the boss everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
you know, that's called leveraging. You got to, you sort of leverage your IQ and you have to leverage your connections if you want to get in those situations. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You could be like a celebrity Alexander technique guy if you like put the pieces together right. But it re would require a very methodical strategy, I think. Well, this is in large part what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Okay. So I, I have clients who are on Broadway. I have clients who are on network television. I, I have clients who are billionaires. So this is a great part of how I've made a living for the past decade. So... Um... Well, that's great. So that um, and uh, is this like your is this your dream occupation or do you have I, I love it. You... I mean, I I, yeah. I love what I'm I'm doing now, talking to an erudite man such as yourself. I, I also love uh, teaching the Alexander technique. I enjoy sometimes writing for people. I've written speeches for people. I make money from that. I enjoy that. Okay, but so it seems like you have two passions then, sort of broadcasting and Alexander Technique, right? I so, mean, there, I, have a, I think I have a lot of passions. I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic. Or, or, or that, okay, career passions. Places, well, is it fair to call broadcasting a career? I mean, it theoretically could be, but it's, it's a hard road, right? Yeah, sure, but it, it can be a very nice supplement. All I'm trying to say is, which do you prefer? If you had to choose between one or the other, what would you choose? It varies on, on the day and my situation and my mood. So I have to be at peak to, to really do good broadcasting. I don't have to be at my peak to be a good Alexander Technique teacher. As an Alexander Technique teacher, there are just certain principles that I want to communicate. Mm -hmm. But to be excellent at what I'm doing right now, that requires me to be at my best. So it's much more demanding and it comes with much more downsides. Like I'm not going to go wrong with an Alexander Technique lesson. Uh, liability insurance for Alexander Technique teachers is about 200 to $300 a year because people, people don't get hurt taking the Alexander Technique. Yeah. So if, if I'm not operating like a Porsche, mm -hmm. uh, uh, broadcasting you know, sh shouldn't be something I do very much of. Okay. Yeah. But let's say, all right, I, I'm just trying to explore the possibilities with you. So like, um, not that this is a possibility, but like, let's say you got to be a football broadcaster, right? Right. Now, but even a, um, I don't know, lower, no, obviously not NFL. What if it was like college football? There's probably no money in college football, right? Broadcast. No, that, there's, there's money from I mean, sideline reporters on uh, ABC make six figures just being sideline reporters for college football. Are you kidding me? Wow. At a big school. Yeah, I would imagine. Like, at a big football school down south or something. Well, it wouldn't be just oh. a big school, but therefore they're working for the network for, the, for say, the, the number one game on Saturday night. They'll be making six figures. Yeah. So give let's say that was given that versus like you know top shelf alexander T technique teacher in la making not, the same yeah. making the same amount of money same yeah. amount of money yeah so, so the broadcasting would be more fun but i think teaching the alexander technique is more meaningful mm -hmm. 
So I don't always choose meaning over fun, but generally speaking, I do. Um, okay. Uh, I'm just trying to think because I, 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 I definitely one of those people that chose the practical route. You know, I was able to put my dreams. <laughs> what were your drawer. dreams, Ellie? I don't think we've ever explored that. <laughs> I mean, it I know you matter. used to work in a it, porno theater. Maybe it wasn't you wanted a porno to be theater. A porn star. I, 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 okay, I used to have cinematic aspirations, shall we say. Are you well right. hung? <laughs> not, not, not that, not that type of cinema. Okay. Dude. Oh. So, I, um, you know, and then so, but I, you know, I had, you know, but at the same time. You know, I, I knew pretty early it wasn't going to go anywhere. You know, I, I kind of always knew I was dreaming about it anyway. So I, I, uh, I was able to pull the plug on it early because it was basically out of necessity, right? Once I, uh, I bounced my rent check for like fifteen cents. You know, like I was fifteen cents short yeah. on my rent, yeah. and it bounced, yeah. and it created this massive embarrassment. Yeah. You know, and. Yeah, I, can't, I I knew that right away that like not having money is just <laughs> the way to go. It creates a lot of pain, you know. Um, so I was able to be very practical uh, in my early twenties. But what about working in that porn theater? That wasn't like a career aspiration. Well, this was a independent. Uh, it wasn't a porn theater. Well, actually, it had been a porn theater prior to me. Cleaning, there. cleaning it up. Yeah, it was a um, scraping the radioactive fluids <laughs> off the seats. <laughs> I, I got to. I actually worked the hazmat suit. I, I worked at the. So I was one of those. You know, um, you know. I came. I, I I'd come fr to San Francisco from New England, so I still had my New England work ethic. You know, which compared to the California work ethic is just like heads and shoulders above. You know. <laughs> It's like I was kind of like an old school, uh, you know, Opie. Um, what's that show? Opie and Anthony. Not Opie and Anthony. Uh, Andy Griffith show. What was Andy? Remember the Andy Griffith show? You probably yeah. You're yeah. I I maybe watched it once, but okay. Yeah, I was very willing and energetic as an employee, and this I people the theater owners were used to really sort of uh, temperamental artist types. And I was basically a farm boy with with a lot of, with a good work ethic, so I rose very quickly in their organization. Shall we? Right? Yeah. And um, you could clean the splooge like nobody else, Elliot. You had to get well. I wasn't afraid to get my hands dirty, dude. No, you, you would get down, and you weren't afraid to be of service. Like you weren't too proud. <laughs> That's right. That's right, and that I was very appreciated. Yeah. Everyone so, appreciates uh, someone who cleans up the cum. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I should I mean, have what you it over was, here. It was actually spilled root beer, like spilled root beer. A movie theater. I can't even go in a movie theater. When I smell the smell of the interior of a movie theater, I get triggered immediately. I can't even be in the room. I just that that weird smell of stale spilled popcorn, stale spilled soda. It's it's just uh, it's my Vietnam for me. And uh, Half Galician has, has a comment here that we should respond to. 
He says, people like sports because there is real human drama. There is losing, there is winning. It's not because they don't have connections in their lives or live boring lives. So did I say that people who like sports are losers? No, I said the more intense, the more intensely you care about sports, the more likely you are to be a loser. Do you think people earning more than a million dollars a year you know, go into work just totally bummed out and, and depressed because their team lost th that weekend? Do you think people who are successful doctors, lawyers, attorneys, rabbis, priests, uh, just you know, uh, shave their heads and, and paint their faces the, the color of their team and you know, go scream for their team at, at a football stadium and hold up signs? No. I mean, people who are the most intensely affected by, by sports who, who go into a deep depression, they're losers. Like, no winner goes into some ongoing depression because their team lost. So yeah, that just because you like sports doesn't say anything negative about you. If you live and die with sports, if your primary source of meaning in life is sports, if you get depressed for days and weeks on end because of sports, then you're a loser. That you're empty. You so want to get rid of your life and just lose yourself in this imaginary uh, universe where you have some connection to a, a sporting team. Uh, that never comes from a happy place. Any thoughts, Elliot? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think there's the people that watch and enjoy sports, and then when it's over, it's over, and they don't go out and buy a jersey with the quarterback's name and wear it around town, you know? Right. I, I haven't seen doctors, lawyers, accountants, successful rabbis wearing sporting jerseys around town. Whenever I see someone wearing a sporting jersey, you know, I know that I'm dealing with someone who's lower class. I mean, does, does Elon Musk wear, you know, Tony Romo jer jerseys? You know, I, I don't think so. And, and yeah, people who are doctors and lawyers get bummed out when their team loses, but they still show up to work Monday and it, it isn't devastating to their sense of self. So for a successful person, their sense of self does not depend upon the outcome of a sporting contest, right? The more your sense of self depends upon the outcome of a sporting or political contest, the more likely it is that you're a loser. And I don't condemn you for being a loser. It just means you need to go get help. There's something really wrong with you if you are incapacitated for days on end because of the result of a sporting or political contest. Yeah, I, I have no disagreement with you. And uh, Half Galician says, my point is Luke just makes these non sequitur fatuous insights that are as often as not untrue. Okay, so show me winners who walk around wearing sporting jerseys. Show me winners who are just numbed with depression for days on end uh, because their team lost. Show me winners who go paint their faces and shave their heads and do all sorts of ridiculous things to mug for the camera when, when they're at a sporting contest. These aren't high-achieving people. These aren't doctors and lawyers. Just imagine you're sitting on TV, you're watching a basketball game, and then out in the stands is some, you know, topless dude, you know, with, with his face painted and his, his head shaved and, you know, all sorts of team logo uh, on him, and you realize that's your doctor or that's your attorney or that's your accountant or that's your rabbi or that's your priest. Uh, you would never go to a priest, rabbi, doctor, accountant, lawyer who was painting himself up for sporting contests, right? you would know that that person was disturbed. Uh, 
I agree, Luke. And the Seems other, like you've touched the, a nerve, nerve. You've touched a nerve, Luke. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've hurt half, half Galatians' feelings, uh, bro. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Like when I recognize this analysis of sports fans, I realize that some of it applied to me. The more, the more emotionally affected I am by a sporting contest, the more, if it lasts more than an hour or two, the more it shows that there's an emptiness in my life. And knowing that there's an emptiness in your life, uh, that's not something you have to mope about or, or get depressed about. It's, it's, a, it's a helpful sign. It shows you that just continuing on with the way you're going is is not enough. I mean, it's similar to you meet someone with tattoos. Right? You meet someone with tattoos, you're talking about someone who's lower class and tends to make really bad decisions. So the more, the more our sense of self depends upon outcomes outside of ourselves, the more likely we are to be losers, to be unhappy. I mean, people who were moping for weeks after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, our lives are not materially affected because Joe Biden is the president and not Donald Trump. Like, it makes very little difference to our real life, whether it's Trump or Biden, or even if it's uh, Ocasio-Cortez, right? The system works in a way that uh, the American political system works in a way that the presidents and politicians, they don't get to have that much of an effect on people's real lives. It's really hard to get anything done in American politics. Elliot. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. To me, someone caring more about sports than politics, you know, I mean, I think politics are obviously more important than sports. And, you know, I was very bummed out about the, the election for, for a good, good long time. Um, so, you know, for whatever it's worth. Um, I, I don't have anything to say because I basically agree with you. And, and again, with, with politics, I mean, politics, people who are obsessed with politics, they're really making any difference. Like they're not actually engaged in making any change. They're not building up anything. It's a form of distraction for them. So millions, tens of millions of Americans spend hours a day on politics, but fewer than 1% of them are actually doing anything. So it's a form of, you know, vicarious... But vicarious engagement and distraction, but yeah, it, it's really word. connected to making a real life difference. There was this phrase, I don't know if I heard it from you or someone else, but it's sort of um, political um, theater or? Yes, political is theater. Is? Yeah. is that, did you stream on yeah. that? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, okay. Uh, that makes more sense to me, yeah. So, Apparently, uh, Microsoft Office will offer or push work corrections on users. So if you're writing something politically incorrect, the Microsoft Office is going to offer offer you know, more politically correct uh, phrasing. No. Uh, have you, you experienced you that? Are you joking? Um, I will. I've heard about this from, I've heard about this from reliable sources like Sticks. Mm-hmm. Sticks and Hammer. So I, I can't imagine. Okay. So Microsoft, this is in the Daily Mail. Microsoft introduces new feature that suggests PC alternatives. Mm. So word goes woke. Microsoft launches woke spelling tool. Tech giant Microsoft trying to make the world more woke. Okay, that 
I shared a link with you. I don't know if you saw it today, but there was a really interesting piece by Sargon and his new group there um, about how all of this woke stuff that's infected these companies is driving the top talent out of Google and out of, I assume, other tech companies. So you're going to get this situation where, um, like, this watch that segment and you'll see, like, these engineers, these top tier engineers, are going years at a time um, because they're always being dragged into meetings about um, non-technical things, you know, the HR-related topics. It's not that they're necessarily being reprimanded, but they're being made to be uh, attend these various indoctrination sessions, and it makes their lives really miserable. And so they leave. I've known people that have left Google. Um, they didn't cite any reason, but and they were making good money, believe me, but just because someone's making a, a lot of money doesn't mean their life isn't a living hell inside the workplace. And sometimes those big salaries are what it takes to keep somebody uh, engaged um, and suffer through all the, the bullshit that, is, that, that attends having such a position. And so you might end up in a situation where a big company like Google can't do anything. They can't innovate. They can, you know, the people there can barely maintain what's been done before them. And all they are are just people occupying a position that they really don't know how to perform in. And it could, you know, really uh, hamper that company's prospects in the long run. But you won't know this is happening until it's happened. Well, I what I hear on the street is that most of the top tech talent is now at Gab. Uh, are you joking? Yes. <laughs> okay. You never quite know what you would. You never quite know. Right. I uh, mean, but the, this idea that your job is a living hell, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's generally true. I think for every person who says their job is a living hell, the odds are 10 to 1 that there's something about them that, that is causing the situation to be hellish. Like if your job's a living hell, then go get a different job. It, we're, you know, we're not in a desperate economy, but, you know, okay, people make but, compromises, right, you know, they want the salary on. or they want the benefits, et cetera. And, and they don't want to take the initiative of solving their problems. They'd rather complain about them. Hold the phone, my dude. Hold the phone. <laughs> you just saying, get another job. So you're, you're taking your, your position is, uh, you're looking at it as from position of someone who doesn't have a giant mortgage and a family to support, right? And who, in order to put food on the table, needs to, um, uh, you know, play ball at work. Otherwise, the real world consequences from them not doing that are very, very severe indeed. So them having to endure those meetings is actually best described as a living hell. No, there, there's something wrong with your attitude. There's something wrong with you. If work is a living hell for you, the odds are 10 to 1 in my estimation that there's something wrong with you. There, there are parts of reality you're unable to accept. That there are probably parts of you that you're simply unable to accept. And so you're then projecting it onto your workplace. There's something wrong with you if your life is a living hell. You're unable to relate to people and to reality as reality is. And so you're upset day in and day out because you can't accept reality. If you have a wife and kids to support, then you should be getting the meaning and the energy to do your job from having a wife and kids. 
Okay, but Luke, well, let's say your job is to write code all day, and instead of writing code, and that's something you've trained in, you enjoy, you've made your career, you've really made sacrifices to get good at it, and you know, in order to keep it, you have to, um, you know, attend these struggle sessions, you know, sometimes many a day, or uh, you know, endure. Um, really basically demeaning uh, treatment at the hands of managers who don't know a fraction of what you know. It is, uh, I say, very demoralizing. Yeah, that, but that's because there's something wrong with the way you're, you're looking at it. You yeah. think that because yeah. you know more code than your managers, that they mm -hmm. therefore should not treat you or speak to you in a demeaning way. And that's but, simply not reality. That's not yeah. how the world works. You are upset at gravity. Essentially, Luke, what you're talking about is gravity. No, I'm talking about... Okay, put it this way. Let's say your job is to bake a cake, right? We'll use a yep. very mundane example, right? Yep. And you have three managers yep. who don't know how to bake a cake. And all you... For you to put food on the table, all you have to do is successfully bake a cake, which takes one hour, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so if you have to deliver this cake at 5 p.m. and you're, instead of being allowed to bake the cake, you're um, being pulled into meetings to describe, to detail to these people who don't know how to bake a cake, how long it takes to bake a cake. What are the steps of baking a cake? Can we uh, outsource baking the cake? Uh, can we get a better deal on the flour? You know, all of these. Uh, meanwhile, while you're in these meetings, your time is being eaten up and it's affecting your appointment. You, you won't be able to deliver the cake, right? Mm -hmm. And it will reflect poorly on you. And you uh, are not living, you're, it's not like you're not acknowledging reality. You are, you're totally in reality, but you're being forced to play ball. Right, but the reason that you're forced to play ball is because you haven't done very well with negotiating reality. I mean, <laughs> you, you've ended up in, in this situation that you find intolerable is a reflection of you and your choices. So someone, if, if you, say, got to know your, your managers better, started to understand the world from their perspective, uh, maybe you'd have more sympathy and get along better with them. And if you get along better with them, they'll probably cut, cut you more slack. But What's the chat saying right now? Does anybody in the chat agree with me or are they? they everyone agrees that? with you. Nobody agrees with me. <laughs> okay. Case closed. <laughs> I, I, I think you're taking these not in touch reality uh, paradigm, which is a good paradigm, by the way. It's not like I disagree with the paradigm, but I think you apply it a little bit too liberally. Yeah, when it starts to starts to hurt, like when it gets a little too close to the home, then then I'm applying it, it too much. So when, when so my supposition is, ninety percent of people who complain that work is hell, that there's something wrong with them. Your supposition is what? My supposition is, this is basically the Dilbert thing. Dilbert is real, right? Working in big companies carries with it a lot of pain. And the pain doesn't make sense to people who are not involved in it. And 
for to be to accuse them of not being in touch reality is very very unfair in my opinion but don't, don't you think most of this pain is just self-inflicted right <clears throat> everyone in a job has to has to do things that they don't enjoy but people do it like having a job is like being a slave for eight hours a day so that's the reason they call it work you know most people don't don't enjoy their work uh, that that's just the nature of reality as it says in, in the book of genesis by the sweat of our brow you know will we eat bread it's, it's uh, onerous it, it's tough but i think most of the suffering is self-imposed because we expect that the world should be different we expect that because we know more about coding that therefore our managers should speak to us in a different way that they should treat us more respectfully that they should uh, perhaps you know bow to us and they should recognize how, how brilliant we are that's just not how, how the world works. But people have this tremendous overestimation of their own importance or they're depending too much on work to, to buck up their sense of self. And so they're disappointed when people who know less than them are telling them what to do. All right. I have to pull up the live stream. I got to see what the comments are because I, I don't think I've ever disagreed so sharply, so strongly with you than I do now. So I have to make sure that I'm not... Uh, I'm not off base here. So the reason, that, but there's principles, right? There's dynamics that are play that are, are universal. It's not like these managers, these mid, you know, these meddling managers are bothering you is because they know that they're not adding value. And so the only way that they can portray themselves as adding value is to pester you, right? They have to, quote unquote, manage you. And, you know, it's not a matter of this being just, you know, slightly, it's not only that it's demeaning, but it's also counterproductive. It's, it's actively counterproductive. If it was actively as counterproductive as you say, then there'd be all these uh, other outfits and, and organizations and businesses that would tremendously outcompete them. But the fact that these managers retain jobs year in, year out, even move up, you know, maybe even make two, three times as much money as you do. Uh, if if they're, they're sustaining a business, I, I sus suspect that their managing is not as counterproductive as you perceive. Oh, boy, Luke. Oh, boy. <laughs> why aren't there other businesses that then outcompete them? Because they have a monopoly or, or a quasi-monopoly. Well, not in coding. There's, there's no... What monopolies are there in coding? Well, certain companies. Okay, we're 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 getting off track here. Um, what if, uh, there's some companies where you can coast. The company is big. It's established. It has any of its threats are just long, you know, a long way off and are uh, difficult to see, right? So you can get in a job and have a job and coast and not really do anything in the day to day except minor little housekeeping things here and there. You know, you can really enjoy a very easy life. Um, so your paycheck isn't necessarily performance-based as it would be in sort of like a, 
stockbroker situation where you have to eat what you kill, right? Right. Um, and so in this sort of slack environment, um, a lot of game playing takes place and a lot of political posturing and uh, work not really related to the bottom line takes place. It's sort of a kindergarten situation. Right, but work that's not related to the bottom line is not kindergarten situation. The The company's or the business's reputation is tremendously important, even if it's not directly related to the bottom line. Uh, showing a certain image to prospective clients, even if it's there's not a direct bottom line, that matters. Like the establishing a certain corporate culture to reduce legal liability, so having diversity training, et cetera, to reduce your legal liability, that all makes sense. Okay, so you're saying um, an otherwise brilliant, talented uh, engineer at Google who could be on the, you know, capable of creating the next YouTube or, you know, making a major contribution towards creating the next YouTube. The, okay, you're, okay, here's where you're mistaken. An average person at a company doesn't care whether or not the company succeeds or fails. They just want to make sure that they get paid and they don't get blamed. Right? Right. You think that everyone going to work is sort of has this uh, sort of team spirit about them that, no. okay, well. No, you said that much of what these middle managers do is not related to the bottom line. I said that there are a lot of things that businesses do that are not directly related to the bottom line, but they may reduce legal liability. They present a certain image. They, they create a certain atmosphere. They bring a level of happiness to key employees. So th there are all sorts of things that businesses do that are not directly related to the bottom line. And it's not out of stupidity. It's because uh, businesses exist for more things than just making profits. Yes, there's some of that. Um, I submit that they're actually counterproductive. All of these sort of team building exercises and things that, that uh, companies do to try and keep retain people actually um, push people away. But that's a different conversation. No, I, I'm sure I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that there are businesses out there that operate in a way that's much more conducive to your preferences. But that there will be there will be other downsides to those businesses. So you'll find more bottom line streamlined businesses. But mm -hmm. you know, every relationship, every job comes comes with a price. Sure, that's all true. I, I feel like the conversation has um, veered from its original intent. Oh no, we, we can't have that on, on the Luke Ford show. We can't veer <laughs> well, from original. We're all about the founders on this show and original intent. Well, uh, no. <laughs> but I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned. You said, uh, "What about the brilliant coder who could invent the next YouTube?" But he's being his soul is being crushed by all this PC nonsense and middle manager nonsense. And my immediate thought when you're saying that is that for every thousand coders who think they're brilliant and could create the next YouTube, uh, maybe one out of that thousand actually are that brilliant. I so disagree. I, I yeah. disagree. I disagree. I think, okay, a lot of beginners think they're much bigger, better than they are. 
but it's sort of the what is it the um what's it called the um, well young people dunning kruger dunning kruger right it's the people that know a lot that really doubt their abilities and the people that know very little inflate their abilities in their minds right but no one over 30 invents anything significant needs to be coding <laughs> I, I assume over 30 is that what you yeah that could be that could be i don't know um but the point is uh i'm trying to bring this back to something that's actually gonna be a benefit i think we're i think we're i, just, I think we got lost in some minutiae here that's uh Hey, why don't you think? Oh, I, I think, you know what, but Luke, okay. I think some of your uh, assumptions uh, around this stuff may be what's holding you back. It's like keeping you from breaking through to that level that you want to be at, right? If you've got your understanding, you know, is would you say that your understanding of the world is fixed or is it fluid? I'd say it's pretty fluid. Uh, if anyone checks out my show, I'm changing my mind on a regular basis. Okay. But it seems like you have certain foundational axioms that you're not willing to question about certain things. And I'm, I can't give you an example right at the moment. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not thinking of it. But yeah, yeah, sometimes I have we a, think we're more fluid than we are, Luke, right? Well, I so have now, an axiom that if we're miserable, it's probably about us and not about other people. Okay. So I, I have to disagree on that one. I think, I think you're right. I think we are ultimately responsible for our attitude. Um, but I think it's, okay, if somebody's being tortured on the medieval rack, right, mm -hmm. are they responsible for their unhappiness? Uh, maybe like they may have, <laughs> they may have poked, uh, they may have poked someone who's very powerful, but they let's may say have they... Like, denied the Trinity or something awful like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the odds are someone being tortured on a medieval rack the odds are that they did something that uh, led that to happen. Not that they're 100% responsible, but for, for most of them, I would doubt they are zero responsible. Okay, so you're well, the innocent are never punished. No, I'd say the innocent are less often punished than those who do something, who play some role. I think most people have some responsibility for their misery, a significant amount of responsibility. I do agree with you broadly. I, I think ultimately you are responsible for the situation you're in. So I'm not trying to undermine that. I'm not trying to counter signal you on that one. But it's it's also true that others can really mess you up, Luke. Because why wouldn't why would Australia be such a more attractive option for you? Right? It's because the external circumstances are different and you find them preferable. Yes. I mean, a person, I think a person could be happy working at McDonald's, but I would be much happier in some other job, some other position. And let me make a second point. When I was starting out as an Alexander Technique teacher, while I was still in school training, I had to have practice students and uh, practice students pay $25 a lesson. And so when I had practice pay cost, oh, they actually pay this. Right yeah, right. They, they pay $25 a lesson. And so yeah. I had one practice student who I, who I was teaching at $25 a lesson and he would come over 
and he'd say, I only have 20 minutes, so can I just pay $12.50? Mm -hmm. And then he would take time to write a check. Like at the end of the 20 minutes, he would write out a check. He'd give me a check for $12.50. And mm. he would take phone calls. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I just have to get this. And like, so, so people- You get enraged. I didn't get enraged, but I realized that this is not working. And so I, I put a stop to, I, I raised his rates and he didn't come back. But uh, once I, I graduated and put my price at $100 an hour, I have not had one negative experience teaching Alexander Technique at $100 an hour. I had a lot of negative experiences teaching Alexander Technique at $25 an hour, none at $100 an hour. So you can, you depending on how much you value yourself and your time and, and your happiness, you can discriminate and you can weed out people who will make you miserable. Like when, when you start, when you apply for a job, most usual question is what's the the minimum salary so you could you know you could say 50,000 you could say 60,000 or you could say 100,000 right so yeah that's so true that is so true you know uh people don't know how to price themselves and they often way underprice themselves um i learned that the hard way boy i was pissed I basically, I, I offered myself up for like half of what I could have got, I later learned. And they don't respect you. When, when you underprice <laughs> yourself, people treat you badly. When you yeah. put a premium price on your labor that is still in reality, then people treat you much better. You were treated much better when you earn usually $100,000 a year than when you earn $50,000 a year. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it sucks to be poor. And there's every reason in the world for somebody to really develop their skills, because if you're not on, if you're not on the right side of the sort of skill knowledge curve, life is very long and hard. Yeah. So people will abuse you to the extent that you let them. Like people will, like if you're an attractive woman, you know people will rape you if they can get away with it. People will fondle you. People will finger you. People, you know, will will just you know pull your your clothes off if if you let them. And, and with guys, you know, people will abuse you and poke fun of you and mock you and deflate you if you allow them. But we have a tremendous effect on how other people treat us. Uh, that's for sure, Luke. That is for sure. So a, uh, lot, a lot of my friends would not put up with any you know, disrespectful treatment in the workplace. They would they put people on notice and they would quit. Um, that's true, Luke. I've also done that. <laughs> okay, but the reason, uh, I don't know how we got on this tangent, Luke, because I was trying to bring it back to your situation and like how you could actually, you know, maximize your potential, Luke. Right? Isn't that the, isn't that the, isn't that the most important thing in the world, Luke? Uh, yes, for me, for you, you know, right? maximizing my life is the most important thing in the world, as long as you know I do it in an upstanding way. Um, that's true. So, um, some of them so, want to abuse uh, you. Some of them want to be abused. <laughs> that's also true. You're just, just, just erupting with truth tonight, Luke. I'm reading the chat. 
What's the chat have to say? What's the best comment in the chat? Some of them want to abuse you. Some of them want to be abused. Everybody's looking for something. <laughs> Luke needs a pulpit. So do you, do you want to pause for a minute? I'll play something and then come back to you. Or do you have uh, to Okay, well, okay, well, okay, sorry, I didn't, um, <clears throat> so the, my point is uh, that you have the skills, right? I think maybe it's just the administrative, organizational administrative aspects are daunting to you, and you think that, and the marketing probably is something that doesn't appeal to you, right? I'm guessing here. Right. Right. So if that problem could be sort of uh, addressed and managed, you'd sort of be able to um, sort of live the dream, as it were. <laughs> yeah, what's the dream like? <laughs> See, look, you know what I'm noticing? I'm noticing... When it comes, you're you're all you've got all kinds of like ideas and thoughts and ideas about other people's lives, but when it comes to thinking about your own life, I think you you uh, I think you don't want I think you like to divert and deflect and not engage. Okay. Okay. Okay, good point. I, you know, I sometimes forget that because you're very candid about so much stuff. I assume that everything is uh, fodder for conversation. And so um, that is a mistake I have made, apparently. So I was muted for the last uh, couple of minutes. So let, let me just repoint, repeat the point. I, I heard said, it all. I heard it all. I know you heard it, but the audience didn't. Oh. So the most important point parts of my life I don't talk about on here. My most important sources of income, my most important relationships, my most important friendships, my most important interactions with family or, or relatives, my greatest joys and my deepest sorrows. I don't talk about on this show. If something's really important to me, I generally speaking, I hold it sacred. There are all sorts of friends that I have that I would never mention on the show, never use any of the interactions that I've had, never quote back. Uh, things that uh, we, we've said to each other. If it's important, if it's if it's sacred, if it's truly you know, the the essence of my life, I, I don't put it on a show. The, the things that are the most sacred and important, you you protect. And I may take a sliver of some important interaction that I've had, or I may have a recollection of some aspect of a, a deal I did or conversation I had. But generally speaking, if it's important to my life, if it's key to my life i protect it and i don't broadcast it okay done sorry to repeat elliot but i was muted for i was muted oh boy for way too long 
Oh, sorry. Did the did the audience hear my rejoinder or? Uh, um, why don't you go ahead and rejoin again? Well, I would just said that uh, because you share so much about your personal life, I assume that all topics are on the table. Right. But what you're sort of telling me indirectly is that you really don't want to discuss the intricacies of your career life. Oh, it, uh, yeah, there, there are any certain aspects of it, but anything really important about my, my career, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't discuss on, on the show. It would just have to be like a sliver that, that might be appropriate for public discussion. But yeah, anything that's you know, life and death, I'm going to speak in a much more sanitized way about, say, whether I move to Sydney or stay in Los Angeles. I'm going to speak about that in a much more sanitized way on this show than if we were talking in person. <clears throat> well, where does that leave us, Luke? It, uh, le we are having a public conversation. So okay. the, the, way, the way we speak, I'm much more careful in, in the things that I'm going to say to you here okay, so, than, than right, privately. Let's, let's, bring, let's bring it back then. So let, let's, we're not discussing any specifics of your life. So what we're, saying, what, what we're doing is we're, we're exploring the, um, the, the postulate that someone suffering in a career setting is um, because they're not accepting reality. Yep. That's right? my postulate. And, um, and I'm sort of taking a position, well, yes, but no. Right. I'm saying you, you have some control, but there's times when you have no control. And I don't think necessarily, uh, so we're talking about, do you acquiesce or do you sort of just stoically uh, endure the slings and arrows, which is what, which is what I do? Um, uh, neither. You, 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 have to, you have to do soul surgery. You have to get down to root causes, which is you recognize that when you're at work, for example, that you're there to, to be of service. When you have the attitude of you want to be of service to other people, then, then your life just works. And when you get away from that attitude, then the wheels start coming off. That's true, but that's a very spiritual approach to this. And there's a lot of value and merit to the spiritual approach, right? And a lot of times spiritual types either don't or can't or won't be strategic and tactical about their lives. They just sort of leave things to fate. Yeah, often non-spiritual people are more successful than spiritual people. Right, because they can plan and execute. And they're also, they have wider ethical parameters. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, so Dennis Prager is in the chat room. He says, I'm happy to say that watching Luke Ford, something I did during a certain phase of my life, but I'm more mature now and I've moved past him. What he's talking about now just bores me. I still like Luke, but it's always the same topics, Jews, money, and race differences. What else is there, Luke? <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> that is sort of true, though. I think that's... But why is he here? Like, I don't get that. I, I would never go on a live stream and say, you know, th this bores me. 
I, I wouldn't waste yeah, my time there too. in the first yeah, place. Why like, why on earth is he here and, and making comments? I would never waste that energy on a show I found boring. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you there. That makes perfect sense. Because um, I, I do, I rarely sort of antagonize the host on any stream. Um, but um, so you've been journaling, right? I have meant to be journaling, but I haven't actually journaled. So when you opened the journal, you said, ah, let me do a little stream first, right? Uh, I don't think I even got around to uh, opening the, the journal. journal. Like I, I've just told everyone that I'm going to journal every day oh. about why am I in Los Angeles? I okay, Luke, Luke, yes. this, is, this is the idea I have for you. And I know you're not going to like it, but I'm going to propose it anyway. Have you ever like uh, done like a period of protracted isolation? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Now, was it intentional or unintentional? It was uh, unintentional. Oh, Are generally. Ever... I mean, I love a lot of time alone because I love to read books. But uh, six years when I was quite ill, I was largely isolated unintentionally. Oh, okay. Dennis Prager says, I followed you for like two years and your stream popped up. I need to get upset. I didn't mean to be mean. I'm not upset. It's just weird. See, Dennis Prager doesn't think he's... He's a master of his own ship. So my stream pops up. Therefore, he has to click on it and he has to come in and comment on it about how boring it is. I, it just, it's just so weird to me. I would, I would never, never waste my time. But people don't want to take responsibility for their own choices. So like Dennis Prager there, he's not responsible for his choices. It's the stream. It popped up. And that then forced him, took away all his free will and just grabbed him out of the computer a hand a hand-like force grabbed him by the neck and forced him to come onto this stream so that he could talk about how boring it is. But he's not responsible for any of that because he has no agency. The stream popped up on his YouTube feed and that forced him to listen to this boring conversation. Okay, back to you, Elliot. Okay, okay. Um, so I, I guess... Um, Oh, yes. So the protracted isolation bit. So um, you've never voluntarily um, put yourself through like, like, could you go to like a cabin in Big Bear for three days with you and just your journal and some crystal light? Yes. And yes. Now, you could endure it, but was it something you'd voluntarily do or you'd have to be pushed into doing it would, it would depend. Doing? It, it would depend. No, it's not something I'd consider doing because silence and isolation is not you know, my, my, my keenest need uh, right now. But I mean, there, there's a time and a place for it. I mean, I, I spend often six hours, eight hours a day reading books. I mean, that's time isolated. Um, yes, it is. Um, but uh, how about you? So, Are you I, okay, doing so these was, three day retreats, silent retreats? Yeah, well, I, I think like uh, I've always wanted to do this myself. Like, just get everything taken care of and take off and be completely alone for three days and do a lot of writing. Um, I, I would say I would jump at that opportunity in a heartbeat if someone offered it to me. I find I get far better writing done after I've interacted with people 
it's not that I'm necessarily going to write about the interaction, but it inspires me. I get far more energy and, and ideas and, and insights and inspiration and, and joy and drive from interacting with people. <clears throat> well, see, but the thing is, is what you would be writing about would be colored by your interaction. And what you want to try to do, in my opinion, is to remove all of that external coloring and like just get into you, you know? Yeah, I've been to paradise, but I've never been to me. <laughs> I've been undressed before kings and I've seen some things that a lady shouldn't see. So, so you, don't, you don't think so? You don't like that idea? No, I'm sure there's, there's a time and a place and there are benefits from it. Not something okay. I'm yearning for. So, if someone, if someone had proposed that to me, I would just leap it. I would that that I, I have. I would find that incredibly, incredibly enticing. But I, I, th I think that's you know. I used to do a lot of like journaling and stuff, and uh, it seemed to like set the stage for like a breakthrough for me. Oh yeah, it's it's a mirror to the mind. It's fantastic. Yeah. But not not today. Not this. Not this lifetime, as it were. Uh, so anyway, I didn't mean for this to be a long call. Like the, uh, I was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna head over the beach pretty soon. So, okay, um, blessings. I just wanted to sort of close the loop on our our football experience. <laughs> okay, mate. Good to talk to you. All right, all right. I'll talk to Cheers. you. Thanks. Okay, bye bye. Uh, Laponia says Leonard Cohen did his best writing after interacting with ladies of the night. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Cohen was quite into threesomes, including with some of our uh, greatest Jewish literary scholars. One way that they would uh, often bond is by doing drugs and having threesomes, two guys, one girl. That's, uh, that provides the fuel for much of uh, Jewish academic scholarship, doing drugs and orgies with Leonard Cohen. Okay, I played a little bit from Joe Rogan earlier. Let me play from... The latest episode of Decoding the Gurus. I mean, why do people argue about something that haven't looked into it all? Why wouldn't she, as a primatologist, go, whoa, for real? Let me look into that. Holy shit. Well, well, that makes sense. I mean, how could they possibly know all the primates? I mean, couldn't there possibly be another one? But no. Where was she from? Uh, I'm a primatologist. Those are fringe sites. Like, National Geographic is a fucking fringe site. CNN is a fucking fringe Right, so I noticed with a lot of this low IQ distant thought, as embodied here by Joe Rogan, is that uh, normally they despise National Geographic, CNN, New York Times, these, these mainstream sources. But when there's something in these mainstream sources that they like, then, they, then they're happy to jump on board and cite it. Fringe site. And that's what it angers me about people. They think that they know without even... So currently there are two Elliot Blatts in the chat. Okay, let me remove Elliot from the call. And there's still... There's still an Elliot Blatt. In the so, come on, bro. Elliot, you got to get off the call, mate. Elliot, you're still on the call. We hear you sighing. Come on, man. I'm looking into it. That is insane. Oh, yeah. I have a <laughs> vagina. Yeah, how about that? There's so much there, but before we talk about it, the first thing that occurs to me is ladies should find someone who feels about you like 
Joe Rogan feels about a big fucking chimpanzee because he's really excited about these. Not just the, it's not chimpanzee, Matt. It's chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know where he got that pronunciation from. Like, oh, they, the reason I play that is just to illustrate that people talk about how Joe's gotten worse, and he has uh, in the pandemic. But this is where he comes from. That's him being aggressive as kind of a bit. But what he's expressing there is clearly what he believes, right? We seen that last episode that we did that he regards himself as being really well informed on things because he, he does a couple of Google searches and mm. he keeps things on this folder on his phone. And Robert says, what happened to that old white man and the angry and that angry young guy he used to have on? So you talk about Kevin Michael Grace. He's still doing his own show on YouTube and Kyle. He's not doing much live streaming. He's moving on with his life. This is an example of how upset he is about... And Laponia says Joe Rogan could be wrong at one instance and right in another. Yeah, but we're talking about uh, the dominant attitude. And that was an ex extreme expression of uh, Joe Rogan's attitude. But I think it was emblematic. People referencing credentials. How strongly felt he takes his conclusions... And also the aggressive conspiratorial tone to it. Like he's, yeah. he's not just somebody asking questions. He reaches yeah. his conclusion and then he belittles and aggressively belittles anyone that disagrees with him. No, it's a good illustration. I mean, this is the same guy who believed that moon landing hoaxes and so on. And they were not isolated incidents. Like you say, it betrays that his epistemics are broken. He really does believe. So there is an enormous market for nonsense like the earth is flat that uh, we never landed on the moon that uh, covid vaccines are dangerous right? there's an enormous market for much of what joe rogan peddles but he's feeding like alan what uh, jones not alan jones that's a, a that's a australian talk radio host but like the Infowar guys you know just shoveling out trash that he reads a couple of articles and then has cast iron certainty. His mind is made up and he was triggered, badly triggered by somebody who clearly does know what they're talking about, a PhD in pharmacology, who just wanted to set him straight, wasn't interested. They really, no. like it really could tell, it was more than just aggressive call-in bantery slash misogyny. <laughs> it was yeah, that, that, he, that he was extremely sensitive and upset by somebody telling him that he might not be 100% right about this thing that he read on the internet. Yeah, and that's how he was with the moon landing. Like you say, that's the tone that he took when he engaged with people. His tone is not like that anymore, but his epistemics are. And his sense of personal, like, I don't know, just... That so this uh, podcast, Decoding the Gurus, it's primarily about analyzing people's epistemics, meaning epistemology, how do we know what we know? So how does Joe Rogan go about trying to understand something? And, you know, he Googles something and he's very easily persuaded, like J.F. Garapi. Like J.F. Garapi completely changed his mind on vaccines. He went from neutral to opposed on the basis of some schlock study by one anti-vax journalist and one other uh, eccentric anti-vax uh, biologist who doesn't have any background in virology. Some, you know, schlocky crackpot uh, study published in, in a you know, no prestige journal and J.F. Garapi reads this and for whatever reason he embraces it as truth. So 
It's like when uh, J.F. Garapi had Kevin McDonald on and said, oh, Kevin McDonald, your theory is so right, it's so true, your critiques stands. You just need to drop the group bit, group evolutionary strategy. You just need to drop that. Well, that was the whole essence of Kevin McDonald's uh, Jewish trilogy. But J.F. Garapi, with his speed reading techniques, he didn't understand at the slightest bit about Kevin McDonald's theory, but he was happy to proclaim that it stands. He just needs to drop the whole foundation of his theory. Come on, man. Check your epistemics. That he is not this guy that doesn't have a high opinion of himself. Like, that is not what that sounds like. So this is... And Laponia says decoding the gurus doesn't offer any proof. Well, they, they do offer extensive footnotes to every show, but it's not a show primarily about establishing scientific truth. It is a show analyzing how the secular gurus operate. This is a selected clip that obviously people played to highlight that he's a bit of a shit. And you, you can find comparable examples of him making reasonable points, but it's the continuity of this kind of reasoning from this clip from you know over 10 years ago to the present. That's what I w wanted to illustrate because Joe is a secondary character in the clips that we're going to cover, but he, but he is the platform. Yeah, Joe is yeah. the one searching Egg. these people out and promoting them. Yeah, a lot of the pushback we get in criticizing Joe is that the position is put that he is a reasonable guy, an open-minded guy, an everyday kind of guy who has been... And uh, chat outs, Luke, any thoughts on Sam Harris? Uh, highly emotional, uh, sometimes interesting, uh, probably the most useful of the intellectual dark web, but uh, has an absurd opinion of his own abilities and just so, so completely distracted from, from reality and from his, his sense of self that it, it's uh, absurd. Like he thinks, that, oh, if people just start meditating, then they're going to start seeing political and cultural and religious issues more clearly. So you just need to get people on my meditation app, and then that's going to just make all these changes, and that's the science. Well, that's not the science. Now, science doesn't say that uh, if people meditate, then there are going to be the, all these huge downstream benefits in increased clarity about politics, culture, and, and religion. So I think uh, Sam is frequently absurd, uh, frequently delusional. Uh, but probably the most interesting and brave of the uh, so-called intellectual dark web. So I would be a hundred times more interested in hanging out with Sam Harris than uh, Eric Weinstein or Brett Weinstein. Like Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein, they're so you know, delusional. It's so little benefit from anything they say. It's it's such crap what they push. I, I you know, would not enjoy being in their company. But Sam Harris is interesting. Sam Harris is brave. So compared to Eric Weinstein or Brett Weinstein, I'd much rather talk to Sam Harris. Misled, unfortunately, by bad luck in having the wrong guests on or something like that. No, he, he chooses the guests. He sets the agenda and he's just not good at figuring out what's true and what isn't. And yeah, unfortunately, he's got a great, huge platform to spread that. Yeah. Okay, so chat wants to know what happened to Owen Benjamin. But luckily, we have a report from the uh, Southern Southern Poverty Law Center. Wait, 
Why is that showing up there? Oh man, got my got my windows wrong. Okay, on the poverty law center. Here we go. Nope, still don't have it. All right, so now I about Malone. So uh, Matt, you mentioned his credentials and whether they're disputed or not. But let's let's listen to just a short part of Malone describing his own credentials. Completed a fellowship at Harvard University Medical School in uh, um, global as a global clinical scholar to round out my CV. And I've uh, run, you know, over 100 clinical trials, um, mostly in the vaccine space, but also in drug repurposing. I've been involved in every major outbreak since AIDS. Uh, this is kind of what I do. Um, I've won literally billions of dollars in federal grants and contracts. I'm often brought in by NIH to serve as a study section chair. Okay, so when you hear someone talking like this, uh, this is, is a vibe that should should uh, fill you in. This person has a vast overestimation of their own accomplishments, their own abilities, and is therefore likely to be a crackpot. For awarding, you know, 80 to $120 million contracts in vaccines. Malone's name is on the patents for mRNA. You can't debunk that. Yeah, just because his name's on certain patents about mRNA doesn't mean that he is like this key figure in the development of mRNA viruses, right? You can put, I could put my name on a patent, right? I could put my name on a patent regarding mRNA. Doesn't mean that I, there's anything important about my patent and mRNA. Thousands and thousands of patents have absolutely no importance. So according to the analysis that I've read of Robert Malone's mRNA patents is that they are pointless and useless. Just because you have a patent doesn't mean that it's important. So it's like all these writers who say that they were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize or nominated for this or that prize. Anyone can get nominated. I could send in a nomination. I could be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize or any other literary prize. If, if there's a, an application, I could send in an application for myself. So that you have a patent or that you've been nominated for some prize it doesn't mean anything. And by defense... I've spent countless hours at the CDC at the ACIP, ACIP meetings. Um, I have multiple friends at the CDC. I work closely. Wow, he's got multiple friends at the CDC. He also talks about his really deep ties to the intelligence agencies. With Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which is a, and it's one of my favorite uh, clients, um, partners, teaming partners. And I work with the Chem Biodefense Group. There's other branches. Um, including the other, it, this is not the branch that funded the Wuhan labs. That's another branch. So this is Robert Malone talking. When you hear someone talking like this, beware. You're dealing with a crackpot. Ditra. And he's not finished there, Matt. He, he will. And uh, chat says, am I familiar with Richard Hanina? I have only respect for Richard Hanina. So he's written a lot of interesting essays. He's written a lot of interesting tweets. I have high regard for Richard Hanina. But in the past, Ford has lauded Jews for hoarding many patents. Come on, man. Yes, generally speaking, uh, patents uh, indicate some uh, some research going on that there's you know attempts at innovation. But just because you have a patent, that's the general 
meaning of, of, of patents is that these are attempts at innovation. But just because an individual has certain patents, just because you're confronted with a patent, doesn't mean that it in and of itself is important. Now, generally speaking, numbers of patents uh, do, uh, on a very broad basis, tell you something about populations. But on an individual basis, just holding a patent, that doesn't tell you anything. All right, let's have a look at uh, what's going on with Owen Benjamin. Canadian technology startup, which already provides monetized streaming for a range of white power propagandists, hate group leaders, and a wanted fugitive, has now created a custom-made platform for white nationalist streamer Nick Fuentes after a payment processor forced him off their main platform. And HateWatch can now reveal that the Thonic software, whose uh, principles have recently decamped from Calgary, Alberta to Turkey, has so far been able to run their entropy. Hey, wait, I use entropy. Run their entropy platform using infrastructure provided by Microsoft's Azure cloud platform. Jathonic launched Entropy in 2019 as a video live streaming service allowing their creators to collect payments from their viewers. have actively promoted the site as a free speech alternative to mainstream social media services. Their promise of limited moderation has attracted prominent extremists. In a December podcast, Greg Johnson, who runs the White Nationalist website and publishes Countercurrent, says Entropy Stream is the only way we can take credit card payments. Greg Johnson says, we have been deplatformed from the global credit card processing industry by angry merchants, unhappy merchants who don't like our message, using coded anti-Semitic terms familiar to observers of white nationalist groups. There are some indications that Chathonic has been specifically courting this niche of deplatformed extremists. And there's a, a tweet from... Entropy's Twitter account promoting a live stream with white nationalist comedian Owen Benjamin with the promise of a censorship-free interaction. In a separate tweet, March 12, 2020, reminded followers that they could send paid offline super chats to French-Canadian white nationalist Jean-Francois Garapi in advance of his stream later that evening. And white nationalist Nick Fuentes has also been streaming in the Entropy app. Then November 29th, Fuentes told the viewers his nightly stream could no longer use Entropy's flagship platform to collect payments. Entropy is not going to work anymore because I was banned, Nick Fuentes said, explaining that their payment processor forced them to ban me by name. Their payment processor called them up at Entropy and said, if you don't ban Nick Fuentes, we're going to de-platform your whole site. But Nick Fuentes said a solution has been found. We have a new super chat system. Super chats are back, says Nick Fuentes. So whatever happened to don't like YouTube, make your own platform. They're just trying to expose hate, mate. Mr. Ford was so serene when he was down under. What is happening with Dear 40 in LA? A lot more stress and tension here because you don't share the same moral universe with many of the people in LA. So let's have a look here. About the yeah, nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You, you bring it up because you really what? care, and I think what that's you nice that you cares? care. The rest of us don't care. I'm just well, telling you a very hard... I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth, okay? Of all the things that I care about, yes, it is below my line. Well, we, I think people, if you, if you explain to them what's happening to the Uyghurs in China, they care, but it's not top of mind for them. That's not What's caring. top of mind right now is they go to the grocery store and, and the shelves are empty. Sure. That I care yeah. about. Yeah. 
I, I, I care about the fact that our economy could turn on a dime if China invades Taiwan. I care about that. I care about climate change. So this guy is a part owner of the Golden State Warriors, and they put out a statement disassociating themselves. So I was wondering if he was able to get away with what he said, but it's not politically correct. Say the truth, and the truth is we don't generally care about our groups. Generally speaking, very few people care about our groups. So let's have a look at this statement from the Golden State Warriors. As a limited investor who has no day-to-day -day operating functions with the Warriors, uh, Mr. Paliptia does not speak on behalf of our franchise, and his views certainly don't reflect those of our organization. But it's not YouTube hate speech. Change. You know, I care about a bunch of, I care about America's crippling and, you know, decrepit in healthcare infrastructure. But if you're asking me, that, do I care about a segment of a class of people in another country? Not until we can take care of ourselves will I prioritize them over us. And I think a lot of people believe that. And I'm sorry if that's a hard truth to hear. But every time I, I say that I care about the Uyghurs, I'm really just lying if I don't really care. And so I'd rather not lie to you and tell you the truth. It's not a priority for me. And my response to that is, I think it's a sad state of affairs when human rights as a concept globally, you know, falls beneath, you know, tactical and strategic issues. So these are all people who are worth hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And uh, they've got an interesting podcast. But it's just not realistic to expect most people to care about human rights on the other side of the globe. Issues that we have to have. We need That's to have another a luxury belief. That's another luxury belief. But I don't believe believing in the, the human declaration of human rights that Eleanor Roosevelt it's created a luxury with the United belief. Nations. I don't think it's a luxury belief to believe that all humans should have a basic set of human rights. I think that it's a luxury belief. Right. And the reason it. I think it's a luxury belief is we don't do enough domestically to actually express that view in real tangible ways. So until we actually clean up our own house, the idea that we step outside of our borders with you know with with us sort of like morally virtue signaling about somebody else's human rights track record is deplorable look at the number of black and far brown men deplorable. that are far from deplorable look at the number of black and brown men that are incarcerated for for absolutely ridiculous crimes i don't know if you saw this past week but there is a person well america will always have problems so the the problem with what he's saying is because america will always be flawed because america is populated by human beings Therefore, there's never any reason to care about anybody outside of America. And obviously, that's, that's going too far. So it's, it's normal to, to watch something on TV or to read an article in the newspaper and be concerned about what's happening on the other end of the world. It's rare that people then become obsessed with uh, what's happening on the other side of the world. So generally speaking, people are going to day in, day out, care about our groups on the other side of the world. On the other hand, it's not realistic to expect that people will never care about those outside their own country. And that was released from jail because he couldn't even be protected in jail because in some of these cells, they run these fight clubs inside of Rikers Island that are basically tacitly endorsed by the corrections officers that don't do anything. And the talk difference... So hold on, Jason. So if you want to talk about the human rights of people... I think we have a responsibility to take care of our own backyard first, first. And then we can go and basically morally tell other people how they should be running. So this guy is a billionaire investor, Chamath Palitia. Their own countries. The difference is, Chamath, 
saying what you just said in China or Saudi Arabia would put you in jail and get you 100 lashes and you would be tortured for a decade. We here in the United States are far from perfect. We still have the death penalty, which is against the United Declaration of Human Rights, which we signed, which Eleanor Roosevelt created in the UN. And we propagated. Well, if Eleanor Roosevelt created it, then we should care. Or if it's United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, like, why, why would uh, people be expected to care about what Eleanor Roosevelt or the United Nations declares to be human rights? These extra governmental agencies, these non NGOs, these non governmental agencies don't have any power. So a lot of people on the right are you know, obsessed with the UN is trying to you know, destroy the West. The re but these NGOs like the, the UN, they don't really matter. As Americans around the world, we started that, Chamath. And we can have these discussions about being better in this country. And the whataboutism that you're proposing is so um, disproportional to the equivalent of the Holocaust going on. We're talking about a million Uyghurs in concentration camps right now to talk about what we have here. Okay, so a million Uyghurs in quote-unquote concentration camps is not the equivalent of the Holocaust unless they're being gassed, unless they're being murdered. So I, I don't think we have any evidence that millions of Uyghurs have been murdered by the Chinese. So no, it's not like the Holocaust. Here that we need to fix and compare it to that or to Saudi Arabia whipping bloggers and throwing gay people off roofs for being gay. The, these two things are not morally comparable. The so he's, he's opposed to... Islam? Is that what's going on here? I mean, what Saudi Arabia is doing is, is a substantial section of how Islam operates. They are very far, and we need to have open discussions and talk about human rights all the time. Because if we do not talk about it all the time, then your position, which is, I don't have time for that, I want to solve my... Talking about human rights all the time is not going to accomplish anything. It's not going to change anything. So where, where do these rights come from? Who enforces these rights? These rights are just opinions. They're fantasies about how the world should operate, right? We're all essentially born into tribes, and tribes can afford its members different rights depending on the situation. My problems then gives the green light to dictators everywhere that nobody's watching. That's we need to true. have vigilance. And that uh, dictators are not, not frightened that uh, some activists on the other side of the world are watching. Uh, dictators' minds are changed by military force or even economic force at times. And that's what I find, and I, I think we wait, need wait, to wait, work hold on, on a second. your that, position. That, that's not what I said, and that's not true. You said you can't get up for it. Yeah. So tell me how— problem. Are you, are you saying that the, the situation with the Uyghurs uh, is the same as the Holocaust? People who are Jewish are making that comparison. Just because people are Jewish and make that comparison is not an argument that that comparison is apt. I mean— that's faulty epistemics. You never no, no, make a no. Holocaust I'm, ask, I'm asking you, I think it is speaking. comparable. There are uh, upwards of a million people in a concentration camp right now. This is getting to numbers that are actually comparable. It is actually a value. We don't call the Holocaust the Holocaust because people were put into concentration camps. We call the Holocaust the Holocaust because approximately 6 million Jews were singled out and, and murdered for being Jewish during World War II. Comparison. You're saying there are a million people in a concentration camp? Th that is the numbers that human rights organizations are saying, between 300,000— Oh, well, if human rights groups believe this, then, then it must be true. I mean, obviously, they need to get funding. They need to attract donors. So the worse they can make the situation, the more compelling they can make their fundraising letters. Now, they may be accurate. Uh, they may not. 
just because human rights groups say this, that doesn't mean it's accurate. It would depend on which human rights group say this and what is their track record for accuracy. Thousand and a million people are incarcerated right now, being tortured, raped, and in doing forced sterilization, re-education, and when they're released, are being tracked in ghettos. And so, are you Jewish people are bringing world, this up. Hold on, are you saying as a comparison? You're saying the entire world has basically decided that that doesn't matter. You just said you can't get up for it. I'm talking about you specifically. Who, but who is getting up? Well, who is getting up for it? I am very up on it. I talk about it all the time, okay. every week. What about the U.S. government? And you talk about it all the time, every, every week. Does that actually do anything? Like most American, many tens of millions of Americans talk about politics all the time, every week, but they don't make any practical difference in the way politics operates in, in the United States. So him talking about the Uyghurs, does it actually make any difference or is it just virtue signaling? I don't know. Maybe he is making a difference. Maybe he's saving hundreds of people's lives. Government, what are they doing about it? The Biden just said we are going to do a ban and we are going to uh, sanction companies that do business in that region. So Apple and, and uh, Tesla? I think there will be increased pressure on all companies that are engaging in China over well, human it's, rights. It's, it's goods that are sourced from those areas, right? Correct. Yes. It's and not I doing business there. It's, it's, it's if your supply chain comes from that area. Correct. Then and it's a first it's So a kind first of step. like, we won't, we won't buy Nazi goods, but we're, we'll sell our iPhones into Nazi Germany. <laughs> well, if you want to have a discussion about this, you know, it's how do we disengage from China? We've had this discussion here. How, what amount of time will it take to disengage from countries that have brutal dictatorships that are committing human rights atrocities. But again, my look, look, I, I think I'm spending a lot of time and money actually trying to fortify America's supply chain. You guys know about some of the things that I'm Absolutely. doing. Absolutely, it's I'm fantastic. Not, I'm, I'm not doing that from a moral perspective. I'm doing that from a practical capitalist perspective. I think the jobs are better served for Americans. And I think that we should have the ability to build our own businesses, just like China has the right to do for themselves without the risk of these things being undercut by policies that we don't understand, which is effectively what you do when you outsource your supply chain to countries where you're not 100% aligned with them. Yeah, and they're dictatorships. So I, again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not even sure that, that, it, that China is a dictatorship the way that you want to call it that. Again, I think Communist that- Communist country that's in the name. Look, you have to understand, Jason, there are a set of checks and balances here on China that you know, at the end of the day- so the distinction between democracy and dictatorship is not nearly as clean and neat as many people think. So the president of the United States has essentially all the power of a monarch. He can basically do anything he wants in foreign policy. The president of the United States can send you know, nuclear, nuclear bombs to, to blow up foreign cities. He can send hit teams to, to kill foreigners. Foreigners have no rights vis-a-vis -vis the president of the United States. He can go do anything he wants to them. He has that power. On the other hand, uh, these so-called you know, dictators in China or, or in the late Soviet Union, they were also constrained, right? They could be overthrown. They could be assassinated. So Khrushchev was, was kicked out of power because of the way he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. So what kind of dictator is removed because he bungles the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So uh, dictatorship is not... It's not just you know one man doing everything he wants in, in a way that's completely incompatible with democracy. So the American president can essentially you know, commit American forces to, to do anything to non-Americans. And on the other hand, the so-called dictator, they have factions that they have to placate. There are various power sources in China. 
right? The, the leader of China does not have 100% control or power over that country. So every democracy contains substantial elements of dictatorship, and every dictatorship contains substantial elements of non-dictatorship. Now, it's not like you've got dictatorship here, democracy there, and never the twain shall meet. Well, the twain is meeting all the time. I don't think that I have the moral absolutism to judge China. And I would say that when NATO is silent, the United Nations is silent, all of Western Europe is silent, and America is effectively silent, that this issue may be small data points being extrapolated in a way to create a narrative that may be not be true. And if it is true, Jason, there is a responsibility for those body politics to do something because that is the early warning signal that the rest of the world uses to say, okay, hold on, let me reprioritize my list of things. So I guess what I'm saying is I am not going to be an armchair journalist on this topic, nor am I going to be the armchair human rights advocate for the world, because I just don't know. I can focus on the things that I know about, build the things that I know about. And if something really does get red light status, then other parties will do something. And again, I just want to be clear. NATO is silent. United Nations is silent. America. NATO doesn't have that much power, right? NATO is only going to do what the most powerful forces in NATO, such as the United States, want to do. America is silent. A press release doesn't change the actual technical posture on these topics. Okay. If, that, if your position is that human rights matters to you, if government, large government organizations uh, or politicians uh, give you the green light to care about it, that's fine. I care about it intrinsically every day. Great. I'm fine with you doing that. I thought there was a segue there to talk about the Ray Dalio thing that Freeberg cares about. I mean, this is I mean, this debate... And, and which human rights exactly does he care about? Does he care about free speech? Is he concerned about increasing social media censorship on free speech in America? Is that one of the, the human rights that he cares about? ...that you're having between kind of realism and idealism in foreign policy is sort of what Dalio tackles, right, Freeberg? Look, I mean, it sounds to me like there's... Um let's just say a red herring. There always needs to be, as Chamath points out, a narrative on framing our enemy when you know, you're running out of land. I mean, you guys saw this, uh, was it a journal article or a New York Times article that came out today that US intelligence revealed that Putin had actually uh, put some actors into the eastern Ukraine uh, to set up for uh, a reason to have a response and therefore an excuse to invade the Ukraine. So he was trying to create a bit of a fireworks show to give him an excuse. We always need a narrative that we can sell to uh, our, uh, you know, our, our, our citizens. And so, you know, there, there's not going to be a lot of, you know, patting on the back of China right now. As we've talked about, there is this, you know, overarching multi-hundred-year economic cycle, you know, call it geopolitical cycle, that the United States and China are about to clash on. And in order for them to clash effectively, we need to get the narrative right, which is to paint them as the bad guy and to make things evil. And look, I mean, you, you may take your ethical framework and say that they are bad, and you may be able to take other parts of your ethical framework and looking objectively, call some countries that you consider good bad as well, depending on what story you want to tell yourself and what story you want to be told. And I think that's what's going on and will continue to go on for a long period of time. And this, this weaker thing, as, as Chamath pointed out, how do you measure on an absolute basis human rights? I don't think that there's a way to do so. Whether it's one person getting tortured publicly in a street or 100,000 people being suppressed economically and not being able to, to get jobs, it's hard to say what is appropriate, what is not, what is evil, what is not. At the end of the day, we, we create narratives and that narrative allows 
the bigger picture to kind of play itself out. And I think that's what's going on largely. And I don't think we're going to hear a lot of good news about China for the next decade from any politician in the United States or anyone that wants to defend our political and economic interests globally, which are certainly being challenged by China right now. Right. So instead of talking about the elites, uh, John, you want me to talk about uh, Mike Enoch and uh, Eric Stryker, talk about uh, a bunch of high school dropouts who, not, not saying that Enoch and, and Stryker are high school dropouts, but many of their supporters are high school dropouts. So those people you're listening to, those billionaires, they have a million times more influence on the future of America and the future of the world. And they have a million times more important things to say than your, your meth head, toothless uh, high school dropout. So yeah, I am more interested in what the elites have to say in general than people who didn't graduate from high school. So for people who have more charm than teeth, right? So I know that uh, as far as like audience numbers, you get a lot more audience when you create blood sports and you have a bunch of morons come on and you know, spout conspiracy theories and nonsense. So I chose to steer my show away from the hate porn. I chose to steer my show away from the moronic levels of blood sports. I chose to steer my show away from you know, low IQ, you know, knee-jerk conservatism, uh, low IQ dissident thought. Try to steer it in a more intelligent direction. Those were intelligent people saying interesting things people who've actually accomplished something in life. And uh, I, I don't have to you know, operate under the delusion that because I play them on my show, therefore, you know, I tangentially or virtually become a member of the elite. No, elites matter. Elites dominate the world. Elites dominate politics. They dominate culture. They dominate business. They dominate religion. Elites dominate the direction of the world. People who didn't graduate from high school don't have much influence over the direction of the world. They can be wonderfully entertaining. They can get drunk like uh, Ove Fu, right, and fall off a fence and uh, you know be on disability for for the rest of his life. Uh, there are lots of people who will come on this show drunk and say amusing, entertaining in a train wreck fashion things. But uh, I, I I aspire to more. Go on, and before we discuss. Some of that specifically about the vaccines and his position in that. Whether you're in the camp that says I'm a liar and I didn't invent this technology despite the patents, when there's a whole cohort of that, no one can debate that dispute that I played a major role in the creation of this tech. And virtually all other voices that have that background have conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest. I think I'm the only one that doesn't. I'm not getting any money out of this. So I think... Why is he not getting money out of this? Because those mRNA patents, they don't actually have apparently any real-world application. He's not making any money out of this because he hasn't done any work that you could then profit from. But he's posing this as, you know, what a moral character he is. It starts to touch on some fundamental concepts. And this is Robert Malone here. And it's just when you hear someone talking the way that this guy talks, you know that you're talking with you know, someone like a Brett Weinstein or an Eric Weinstein who has you know, such tremendous delusions of grandeur that they're deeply disconnected from reality. Constitutional principles about rights of free speech. I expect that's kind of where you're going on that. Mm, yeah. So his significant role, it 
developing mRNA vaccines is disputed. And I've seen some pretty good disputation of that. It seems like a fair assessment would be that he made a, a small, not negligible, but somewhat marginal contribution to their development a long time ago. Many of those patents he mentions are patents are complicated. They're, they're put in by companies and he might be mentioned or something like that, right? I know. I think he does also own some patents, like primarily, but a bunch of them, like the fact is he's getting no money because this is something that people do in a bunch of spaces related to biotechnology and, and science where they try to patent things speculatively. Yeah. And then because the patents themselves are basically vague and, and technical, yeah. they when they are then tried to be applied to technologies and they are assessed by people who know, the people say, no, this is like a patent for it's either too broad or it doesn't relate to the later technology closely enough. So yep. Malone's yep. patents aren't worth the paper no. they're printed on, it no, seems. That's right. The, the fact that he's not making money off them is at least partially reflects that the technology that they cover isn't actually used. It was a bit of a dead end. And that's what, as I said, that's what people do. Patents are a commercial maneuver more than anything else. There's a nice graphic that Dan Wilson, the debunk the funk host made, where I, I think it's a diagram showing the timeline of the mRNA vaccines developments, lipid nanoparticles and mRNA technologies, like these two parts that were necessary to be developed. And it shows a timeline from 1961 to 2020, right? Mm. And there's maybe about 20 or 30 publications and developments highlighted on the timeline. And Malone is involved with one of them. So the interesting thing about this is into the inside of the woke administrative state that is running Silicon Valley. Now, you might not know anything about this subject, so we're just going to have a quick refresher on the uh, on the topic. For example, in 2016, it turned out that a bunch of the Google talk exec top execs were really, really upset when Trump was elected. Some of them actually cried in a big meeting. Uh, Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, was like, well... This is uh, pretty bad. Let's face it. Most people here are pretty upset and pretty sad for the election. Myself, as an immigrant and refugee, I certainly find this election deeply offensive, and I know you do too. This election Let's is Let's take... You've seen the video of that. I have. I, I only found out of it because of Soph, and you know, now she's deleted from YouTube. But, yeah. uh, I remember there's that bit where the big fat guy comes up and he's like, white men in the audience, this is a moment for you to understand your privilege. <laughs> Jesus. I, I always knew Google was bad, but... It's really bad. And so when in 2017, James Damore released his uh, Google's ideological echo chamber memo, just a, a few notes where James Damore's like, look, right, maybe, maybe there's a biological difference between men and women. And of course, this this caused uh, who's it, Sundar Pichai, I think it was, the, the CEO of Google at the time, to come back off his holiday in Africa so he cut his holiday short and returned to manage the internal structure of Google because there was apparently some chaos and catastrophe just because James Moore had said this. He, of course, was fired. Uh, and he was, of course, right. But uh, anyway, so it's not just Google, of course. In 2018, we learned that Facebook has an internal conservative union because of their intolerant monoculture within Facebook. And uh, they 
claim to have been actively discriminated against because they're conservatives. And of course, Twitter has for years been banning people who misgender and dead name trans people. So that's everything you need to know. Saying their birth names. Yes. The names on their birth certificates and passports. Mm. And you're not allowed to say them, otherwise you get banned. Not just the tweet deleted, not just a restriction, banned. Does that work if you change your name and you're not transgender? I have no idea. What if I just don't like my name and I want to change it to something else? And someone calls you Callum and you go, no, report. No, my Max Powers, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you should try it. But anyway, so th- this is, of course, not limited to any mainstream media, uh, a mainstream Silicon Valley uh, platform. In 2020, Susan Majewski explained to us why she was going to start trying to engineer the positions that people have, have on YouTube. She decided she was going to promote authoritative sources, and she just explained this in a podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast, fans, so I'm afraid, sorry about that. It was but she, a rabbit hole. Like that's it, right. The rabbit, yeah. And, uh, and so she went on this podcast and said, well, she, after the uh, terrorist attack in Nice, France on Bastille Day in 2016, she decided she was going to start prioritizing authoritative sources. She says, I remember reading about it and just being extremely upset and thinking our users needed to know about it. Woman has feelings. Mm. She happens to be in control of the largest media organization in history, broadcasting to literally like 2 billion unique users a month. And she's like, I'm in the grip of an emotion. Our users need to know. Susan, I don't need to follow all your posts. No. Like, this is her. So what you could do, if you're a human, is make a... a post about the thing that you have feelings about yep. and then maybe your friends or family will interact with it yep. and that's that's where it ends you don't then catharsis achieved i'm going to send the post to everyone who uses the platform yeah and uh, of course this expanded out into the youtube covid guidelines which are actually kind of hilarious when you start reading them in retrospect now i just want to make it clear to youtube i'm not commenting on any of this i'm literally just going to read out your your guidelines. They say, don't post content on YouTube if it includes any of the following. Content that recommends use of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for treatment of COVID-19. Claims that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are safe to use in the treatment of COVID-19. Claims that the virus no longer exists or the pandemic is over. Can't claim the pandemic's over. It's forever I, I assume ever? Yeah. I mean... Okay, so you got a pandemic that's killing a lot of people. It doesn't seem most absurd thing to say that you can't deny that it's still going on there's there's a point at which no i can't carry on anyway (laughs) claims that the covid19 vaccine will kill people who receive it which is why we have to do premium podcasts claims that the covid19 vaccine will be used as a means of population reduction that's spicy claims that masks do not play a role in preventing the contraction or transmission of covid19 which is why rand paul got censored by youtube Go to the next one. Uh, after, of course, he got censored, the CDC came out and contradicted YouTube's guidelines, as the New York Times reports. Very interesting. Well, science is, is constantly changing, right? That uh, the CDC changes its guidelines with regard to masks and COVID should not be shocking, right? Science is not something that just drops from heaven like a revelation at Mount Sinai. It's constantly being adjusted, adapted to new information. 
So who are the people running all of this? Who are the people actually, you know, who make up the institutions at each level? Wait, wait, wait. He's not going after the Jews here, is he? Level going up to the lunatic decisions that are made by their CEOs. Well, we have an insider here, obviously pseudonym, Hazard Harrington, uh, dead, dead name, you know, uh, who says that he works in big tech in a now deleted thread. Uh, he says, I work in big tech, a name you will know and have probably used before. I wanted to give a rundown of what it's like from the inside right now. Obviously, insanely, radically left-wing. BLM, LGBTQ, trans flags hanging in the office, pronouns stated before meetings, special affiliation groups for everyone but white men, all what you'd expect. Not in any way shocking, not in any way surprising. But with COVID and work for home, this has totally broken people. Well, maybe we wouldn't have this problem if conservatives were more powerful in creating technology. If conservatives had more power and influence in academia and in cutting edge apps and uh, in creating powerful newspapers like the New York Times. So it's lefties who do much of this innovation and therefore they get to get the spoils that come with victory. They are fundamentally weak, often with no social support outside of work. They're the people with no children and no spouse, only a dog or cat for emotional support. There's constant talk even now about how hard things are for everyone. Sorry, I just imagine imagine describing yourself as I have an animal and my pronouns to keep me up and running. <laughs> like that's all you've got. I'm a human being. <laughs> is that what a human is? Well, how did they get to be so successful with these ridiculous ideas? And how come people with more clarity, people who are red pilled, right? How come they're not richer? How come they're not more powerful? How come they aren't creating innovative tech? Right? So if you know the lefties are just not so and they're they're just doing things in such an inefficient way. How come they're so powerful? How come they're so influential? How come they are dominating, right? I mean, the left has just pretty much won every culture war, right, for, for what, the last 50 years? How come the right can't be more effective? If if the right is red-pilled, if the right is so much more in reality, if the right is seeing things so much more clearly, if the right is is as aware of more efficient ways of organizing businesses, then how come the right isn't more successful and the left is is dominating big tech? A little bit more here on Decoding the Gurus. Robert Malone and Peter McCullough, a litany of untruths. Not litigating precisely how significant his individual research contribution was, but what's obvious is that he's exaggerating it a great deal, I think. A little factoid you mentioned to me, Chris, is that his wife was actually banned from Wikipedia for aggressive editing of his Wikipedia page in order to magnify. Right. If your wife is going out there and aggressively editing Wikipedia to try to magnify uh, your purported contributions to MRNA, that's a pretty good tip-off that we're dealing with charlatans. Magnify and exaggerate his track record, which, again, is not really behavior you tend to see with people that are genuine Nobel Prize winners and so on. There's a part of this where it actually comes towards the end where he's basically saying that if he doesn't want to be involved with this, it's not about credit or that kind of thing. So let, let me play the clip. And um, they're taking our licenses and uh, license to practice medicine because we are and Elliot says the, the people who Sargon is talking about are the affirmative action hires brought. No, 
he was talking about the founders of Google, right? the main powerful, most powerful people at Google. Susan Wojcicki is not an affirmative action hire. That meeting that they were referring to at the beginning came from the most powerful people at the company. So no, it's not the idiot affirmative action people that he's talking about. We're speaking about these matters, and you can label me however you want to label me. I don't care. I've done what I've done in my career. I'm at a stage at 62 years old. I've got a farm. It's almost paid off. I raise horses. I love my wife. You know, I've been married a long time. My kids. It sounds like the setup for almost every action movie. Right? Every almost every action movie is just a family man just wants to live a quiet life, but they won't let him. And so this guy Robert Maloney here is is portraying himself as as akin to some kind of action hero. He just wants to lead a quiet life on on the farm. Kids are both married. I got grandkids. You know, I don't need this. Um, I'm there's this claim I'm doing all this because I seek attention. Trust me, this is not a fun thing to be doing. So, uh, Elliot says Obama won the Nobel Prize prior to taking office. No, he won the Nobel Prize a couple of months after taking office. But your point is correct. He didn't do anything to acquire the prize aside from win the election and be the opposite of George W. Bush, who may very well be the worst president we've ever had. Like you said, Matt, this implies that he doesn't really care about credit. It's just about the truth. This is what is motivating him. But one, it's completely undermined by his constant presentation of himself as the key inventor. Right. This is the common theme with these secular gurus is this sense of grievance just dominates them. People like Eric Weinstein and uh, Brett Weinstein and uh, Sam Harris... The tremendous sense of grievance that powers them. Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, Joe Rogan. Of mRNA. He does this in multiple appearances. And the way that he's introduced on the Rogan description is the inventor of the nine original mRNA vaccine patterns, right? Mm. And, and so on. He's presented as the key linchpin. And the, the point you know, which is really important, is like when I saw Malone appear on Brett Weinstein's podcast. I actually looked up on Wikipedia, like, is he? And I saw him in the description of mRNA vaccines. And I was like, oh, so, you know, that's a, that's the first, like, kind of bullshit chat that you would Man. do. Yeah. Little did I know that <laughs> the reason he was prominently mentioned there was because his wife had been in editing the article in order to assign him a core role. And she did this repeatedly and then was eventually removed, banned from editing on Wikipedia. And Malone presented this as a conspiracy because he was like, she she is a long-term editor, so they're silencing her. And it's like, no, you, you can't do that. Your close family cannot assign you as the sole inventor. This is like a conflict of interest that should be obvious to a child. Okay, that's from the podcast Decoding the Gurus. That's it. Bye-bye.